Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, Matt, I consider us very fortunate that every week we get to speak with Lauren Sauer at the Johns Hopkins University because there's so much news that just breaks on a daily basis about, um, you know, the, the pandemic, therapeutics, as well as vaccines. So again, today we are joined by Lauren Sauer, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine from the Johns Hopkins University. And I should note that the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP, Bloomberg Philanthropies, and this radio and, and TV operation. Dr. Sauer, thanks so much for joining us. I'd love to go to the issue, which I think is beginning to develop, and, and we kind of knew it was going to come, which is we're going to have more supply of this vaccine than demand. Is it now time for a big PR campaign to kind of get out the, you know, the, the vote, if you will, to get people to, to get vaccinated? Yeah, absolutely. I think it is. I mean, I think um, those access issues that we've talked about, you know, several times on this show uh, and that we've heard a lot about are still remaining for certain populations. But I think the push right now has to be convincing those people who have decided not to or haven't decided to get vaccinated that now is the time um, and that vaccines available. Uh, you can get it um, in many different places. And if we facilitate the ability for people to get vaccine, um, that we can start to get those numbers up again. Well, well I mean, in terms of access, President Biden said yesterday that every American is going to be at least five miles from a vaccine site. Is he off with those uh, figures or is no, it difficult I, I for some people right. to get? Yeah, I think the key is not where necessarily the vaccine sites are, but um, how you access them. So I think now is the time where we can start to see creative options for getting um, vaccine into communities rather than asking communities to go to vaccine, because even if it's only five miles away, that may mean that someone has to take some time off work, has to get childcare, may have to borrow a car, take public transportation. Um, and all of those things, when you add barriers to someone who isn't sure if they're going to get a vaccine, um, right. that that creates, you know, something that weighs on the side of oh, I just won't get it right now. He also he also said that he wants um, employers to guarantee that workers are able to get out and get the vaccine with paid uh, with uh, paid time and and also are able to recover from anything with paid time. One thing that's a concern, I guess, is the hesitancy, right? Um, we know that uh, America has a big crop of anti-vaxxers. Um, and I saw a tweet from Joe Weisenthal today that maybe w will help um, <laughs> PR in the other direction. He says, Lauren, I'll, I'll quote Joe Weisenthal directly. So I actually feel like a kind of weird high after my second Pfizer like I just took some codeine or tramadol or something, um, makes me excited to get out there and get my shots ASAP. Because uh, who doesn't Anything love to tramadol? Anything to make you feel better, right? Yeah, but um, <laughs> is this something that Paul didn't really feel it? He got his second shot and said, "Yesterday, um, yep, no side Felt effects." Good. So, uh, is there anything that people are reporting that they, you know, feel in the, in the positive sense after these? Um, there, is, we are he hearing a lot of reports of that sort of euphoria of just like oh my gosh, I can take a breath. Like it, it, it feels good and it is exciting. And we've made an incredible amount of progress to get here. And it, it does feel like, you know, you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And, and I think that is not to be discounted. I mean, I know when I got my vaccine, I felt, I, I also felt a sense of euphoria, like, 
holy moly, the weight has been lifted off a little bit. I'm, I'm headed towards protection. We're headed, you know, towards the other side of this. And, and it's exciting um, and it's incredible. And, and the work that went to get us there is unbelievable and shouldn't be discounted. And I think if people are going out and feeling that, that's amazing. And they deserve that. Uh, Lauren, what do you expect to hear? Uh, I guess we're waiting to hear today about the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine. Oh, yeah. what, what do you think is, we're going to hear? I have a feeling what we're going to hear is um, that it'll be, you know, made available again, and there might be some caveats to who can get it. Um, so they may slightly restrict the population. I think we're all sort of waiting, just like you, to, to hear what they decide. They look through a ton of data. They've done all of their due diligence. I think it's great to see that this system, um, this adverse event system reporting is is working and, and reporting is happening. And so I think we will probably see it, you know, available again, um, but with a, a modified allowance for who gets it. Hopefully men in their 40s with a solid dad bod <laughs> get a first <laughs> shot at it because... I think I saw that in the preliminary material. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely uh, excited. For if, if, if and when that's cleared again, I'm headed back to New York to get my shot and then we can all... Play bridge together, sans mask. That would be fantastic. Lauren, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. Lauren Sauer there from the Johns Hopkins uh, School of Medicine. The Bloomberg School of Public Health, of course, is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg. And you may have guessed he's the founder as well of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. And he runs the uh, TV and radio stations as well. All right, JT, thanks very much for that. Now, you brought us the new home sales data at the top of this program, um, destroying the survey numbers. We saw uh, 1.021 We were looking for 885,000 new home sales month over month, a gain of 20.7% compared to the survey uh, estimate of 14.2%. So really strong numbers. And our next guest says, um, the that's the new home sales the existing home sales market is the unhealthiest housing market in 10 years we'll find out why from logan motoshami he is a housing data analyst um also lead analyst for housing wire out of irvine california logan let's talk first about the new home sales numbers uh, 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 amazing jumps what what best, uh, what strikes you about home this market? Sales report, yeah, best new home sales reported over 10 years. I mean, you had the trifecta. You had headline numbers, which can be wild month to month. I think people get confused sometimes where you have these really big months and big declines. But uh, headline was great. But the key is revisions. We had positive revisions, and monthly supply is below 4.3 months uh, on the headline and on a three-month average. you got to keep it simple with the new home sales market because we, we focus so much on lumber prices. But as long as monthly supply for new homes is under 4.3 months, something that never happened from 2008 to 2019, the builders are happy. No matter what they complain about in any surveys or anything, that is all they care about because that means they could sell product and that will lead to higher housing starts. So as long as that continues and I was going I was just going to ask Logan, does that mean they're going to go out and keep building more? Is everybody who knows how to build a house going to go and do it right now? Yes. And as long as that supply is uh, that low, we're okay. Now, this sector gets hit harder than the existing home sales market when rates go higher. So the, the backdrop of higher mortgage rates would be problematic because then, you, then the lumber prices really kick in. But for now, things are good. New home sales, fine. Excellent print, best print in 10 years. Revisions, good. Monthly supply, good. Great, great way to get into the weekend. All right, Logan, but on the existing home sales, you know, I just in the, in the town where I live, as soon as anything goes on the market, 
it snapped up. At, and there's just not that much supply, I guess. So give us a sense of the existing market. Snapped up at a price much higher than yep. than you saw in the ad, right? Because yep. I, I know people have been looking for homes around that area, and they just can't get anything because it jumps 5 10 15 20% right away. This is the most unhealthiest market in the last 10 years, where the new home sales market has a, has a, has a different economic backdrop. We just do not have a lot of homes, and that's the main issue. If mortgage purchase application demand, is when you do some COVID-19 adjustments, it's not up that much year over year. But total inventory has been falling since 2014 as purchase application data has been rising. And now we have, you know, we have the best housing demographics ever recorded history, and we have the lowest mortgage rates ever recorded history. So when you put that many people into this marketplace, which is always my biggest concern in this period, uh, you're going to get pri- you need to fear about price escalation. But the but the problem is in the past, higher mortgage rates tend to balance this out. Uh, COVID-19 has kept mortgage rates artificially low. It's kept the bond market artificially low with compared to our economic data. Like our economic data warrants a 10-year yield north of 2.42%. But so we have we just have a very unhealthy marketplace because literally people are not losing their bids by one or two people. They're losing their bids by 11 to 15 people. Mm. That is extremely unhealthy. And we're getting these home price growth without a credit expansion. And this is what concerns me about this period of time is that Price growth is really going up, but demand is not really falling through with it. And, and that's, a, that's going to be a problem down the line, again, when mortgage rates eventually rise. And I'm not talking about like 6 or 7%. I'm just talking about well, 4 four and a quarter percent. Well, so, Logan, I mean, I'm looking – I'm hoping to move back to the tri-state area, looking for a nice colonial on a couple of acres in Westchester County. <laughs> built. I'm, I'm hoping, the way I envision it, built in the 1780s, 1790s. Um, what you're saying is I should just trash that idea and just buy a couple of acres and, and build it myself. If you could find the lumber, then yeah, that'll be a good thing. If you can do it, but yeah, it's just, it's just an extremely unhealthy market. I mean, that's just, we just, and there's not, there's nothing that could really solve this in the short term unless mortgage rates go higher and COVID is impacting the world economies much uh, harder than ours. Our economic data is much better, uh, but it's keeping rates low. And it's just, it's really frustrating for buyers. I mean, uh, you're just, you're not getting outbid by one or two people. You're just getting outbid by many. I mean, some homes are getting 30 or 40 offers and some of the price uh, final selling prices are, are, is insane. Well, exactly. Because even if you do get the house, then you move in and you're going to bed knowing that you bought in at the top of the market. Well, here's, here's, here's one thing about that. The difference between now and then, let's say, 2002 to 2005, that was more of a speculative credit bubble where these, those weren't really homeowners. A lot of our investors here, anybody who buys this home is legit. And the concern is it's not about a housing crash or home prices peaking out. It's that these people all are going to stay in their homes. They're not going to lose their jobs or anything anytime soon. They're going to stay here for a long time. It keeps housing stuck. Being stuck is the worst problem. Because there's no real, there's no velocity quick fix to this. So, uh, and if you look at our home prices, our real home prices, they're so much lower than what Canada, Australia, New Zealand, France, the UK has. Their real home price growth has been much stronger. So again, my the fear for me is always that price just escalates out of control because these are all legit buyers, but sales really aren't growing that much. And that's, that's being stuck. That's the frustrating part. That's why I say this is a very unhealthy housing market. However, higher rates should cool this down. 
right? Because there is no credit bubble this time. There is limits to housing. You're still bounded by the rules of numbers. So hopefully, and especially now that I think supply, some more supply will come on the market. It just cools this market down because guess what? This demographic passion, they're not going anywhere. They need shelter. They need somewhere to live. Hey, Logan, thanks so much for joining us. Love getting your perspective on all things real estate. Logan Motashami, housing data analyst, also lead analyst for Housing Wire based in Irvine, California. Matt, how's the housing market in, in Berlin and in, in Germany? I, I have to say, as he was saying, that um, the, the actual prices aren't higher than they are in Canada or the U.K. Um, the, the prices here are extremely high. I mean, if you want uh, a, a nice house in the suburbs in the Summit or the Greenwich or the Bronxville of Berlin, you have to be prepared to pay, um, you know, starting at $2 million and probably and probably higher, frankly, for what you could get in the U.S. It's incomparable. But what I was thinking is, Paul, if your kids are now going to college, you oh. have empty bedrooms. Maybe <laughs> me and my well, wife could just move in with you. Yeah, a little, a little Airbnb action. We'll talk about that off the air, Matt. That could be a, a good transaction. We all know the bull call on this equity market is driven by the Federal Reserve, accommodative money. Uh, it's driven by fiscal stimulus, the reopening trade, lots of bullish uh, underpinnings to this market. But a lot of investors are questioning, is that all priced into the market? So let's get a sense of what traders are really thinking about that. We, to do that, we check in with Randy Frederick. He's vice president of trading and derivatives for the Schwab Center for Financial Research. Randy, thanks so much for joining us here. I know you guys have your Trader Pulse survey. We really you know, talk to traders and ask traders what they're thinking. What are the thoughts here? of these markets as we are hitting kind of, you know, kind of all-time highs almost on a daily basis? Well, let's go back to what you mentioned right off the bat, which is that, um, you know, many of our traders told us that they thought that the the easy gains, if you will, of the market may have already been built in. Not too surprising with the S&P 500 up 86% since it bottomed back in March of last year. But they also still have a fairly optimistic view. So, in other words, while we may not see another 80% over the next 12 months, they still think there's upside available. So uh, when are we going to know that it's time to sell? Well, I don't think we ever really know when it's time to sell. Um, and we don't think selling in the broad sense of, like, get out of everything is ever a good idea. Um, what we often tell our clients to do is to take advantage of market volatility when you have little uh, down dips, um, as we were kind of in. till today, we're getting a little bit of a bounce back. Um, those may be opportunities to pick up a few extra shares. And when you have... Uh, markets hitting all-time highs like they did just last Friday, maybe you take a little bit of profit off the table. But wholesale selling is just never really a good idea. So nobody rings the bell at the top, as they say. All right, Randy, just give us a sense of kind of when you, again, survey the traders. Um, what are their thoughts towards volatility here? We've seen the VIX pull back pretty significantly here to the $17, uh, $17 $18 uh, uh, range here. What are they thinking about volatility? Well, what they think about volatility is that they think volatility might actually be a little bit worse in Q2 than in Q1, which is kind of interesting because um, it's actually been a lot lower. Uh, Q1 volatility was quite a bit higher um, than what we've seen. In fact, we've seen the VIX hit uh, 12-month lows here just in the last couple of weeks. So, um, But I think that's more of a sort of a response to what's going on at the moment that they received the survey. Um, and I think it also had a little bit to do with the fact that um, when this survey went out, uh, we were seeing interest rates um, hitting a high level we haven't seen in quite a while, and the concerns about inflation, I think, were pretty high. That has, t that has come down a bit. 
um, in the last couple of weeks, as you know, since uh, April began, uh, we've seen the 10-year pull back a bit. The inflation worries have subsided to some extent. And while it seemed earlier that many people were sort of um, not necessarily trusting of Jay Powell that he didn't plan to raise rates, and I think he's convinced the market now. What will the new tax laws, if they're put into effect, uh, this new tax plan, if it's put into into law, do to the trading environment? Well, you know, the sell-off we got when this was first announced is not surprising. When you have the market near or at all-time highs, we were about 1% below the all-time highs, uh, it becomes very sensitive to any sort of news that might be perceived as negative. Obviously, people believe if their taxes are going to go up, that's not a good thing, and so the knee-jerk reaction is to sell. But we're seeing a bounce back today, not too surprising. Generally, the sell-offs are overdone. Uh, they tend to be a little bit too extreme. What we don't know is a lot of things. First of all, we don't know whether it would be retroactive back to the beginning of 2021 or whether it wouldn't kick in until 2022. We also don't know what the final bill might look like if or when it ever becomes law. Most of the time, initial proposals are watered down substantially before they finally become law, if they ever do. Uh, so it's really way too early to speculate how that might play out. The interesting thing is, I mean, it seems to be focused primarily on the top three-tenths of 1%, which is a very small portion of the population, but also a portion who owns an enormous amount of equities in the market. Um, but there seems to be quite a bit of pushback. Um, I think uh, it may be just sort of a, a launching point for negotiation. There's been a lot of pushback, as you know, about the potential for raising corporate tax rates. Uh, so this is an alternative to that. If they don't like the corporate tax rate hike, then maybe we should go with individuals. Um, you know, one thing that's interesting about this is that people always complain about how complex the, the tax laws are. If you eliminated the 12-month hold for long-term capital gains and you taxed interest, dividends, and capital gains all at the same rate, it would greatly simplify taxes. Certainly, it would go up for, for some of the high earners, but it would simplify things substantially. So I don't think we know how this plays out. We don't even know if any of it uh, will come uh, into becoming a law, and if it does, it will likely look a lot different. Hey, Randy, 30 seconds left. Uh, what are some of the sectors that the traders in your survey uh, are liking right now? Well, one that I think is really – one of the parts I thought was found very interesting was that last year when we did this survey, the top sector that they were optimistic about was financials, which I think turned out to be a very good call because financials lost 4% last year. They're up 17% year-to-date. So the two worst sectors last year were financials and energy. Those are the two best ones this year. Right now, our uh, investors that took this survey told us that they're still optimistic about energy. As much as we talk about green energy and battery-powered cars and all these other things, that still makes up a very small portion of the overall economy. Uh, Old-time fossil fuels and, and traditional energy is going to be with us for a very long time. It's down like it was last year, but it certainly is not out, and I think this year's rebound is a, um, indicative of that. There are certain fossil fuel cars and motorcycles that I intend to keep forever. <laughs> forever. They'll have to rip them out of my cold, dead hands. They will hands. be around for a while, I think. Randy, yes. thanks so much for joining us. Randy Frederick there, VP of Trading at the Schwab Center. All right, now we're going to focus in on the municipal bond market. Eric Kazatsky, senior U.S. muni strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence joins us and um, we had kind of a bombshell yesterday on uh, the tax side of things Eric how does this affect the muni market in your estimation hey good morning guys um, 
Look, obviously, any time you have higher taxes on the margin, that's going to be good for municipal bonds, right? People are going to look for ways to lower their tax bill. Um, but I think if you if you sort of look back uh, before we had tax reform in 2017, right, when we had higher taxes, we didn't see like a huge incremental retail demand. I think the real play here is going to be what happens to valuations in the higher tax states like New York and California, who are already talking about increasing their marginal tax rate in state and then combined with a higher federal tax rate, you could be up in the 50s um, and we could see valuations on the debt in those states really take off. All right. So, Eric, just give us a sense here. We've known for a while, certainly since President Biden was uh, elected, he won the election, that probably going to see some taxes go up. What is a you know, municipal bond market? Have you saw fund flows just take off from there or has it been kind of a wait and see issue? No, it's been consistently strong. And I think a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, fear of higher taxes in the future. And, you know, as, as the corporate market looks frothy um, from valuation standpoint and people want to decouple from equities, they are moving into munis because it's an uncorrelated asset class with a low historical default rate. Right. So it really checks off two boxes as far as moving to like a safe haven and getting the tax free income as a kicker on top of that. What do you expect the uh, the changes to be um, when we're when all is finally said and done? I mean, has there been any is, is there a pool going on in the office as to what we're going to see at the end of all this? <laughs> I, you know, what? It, it's an opening gambit. Right. And, you know, obviously, like given the past negotiations, we could be somewhere in the middle. But if I had to guess. I would say that they they get somewhere in moving the needle higher in the the tax rate to 39 percent range, but they might have to give up the efforts to repeal the SALT limitations. All right, Eric, talk to us about the taxable municipal bond market. It's a fascinating market to me. What's going on there? You know, flows are still strong, and it continues to be one of the biggest performers uh, in fixed income this year. And, you know, with the talk of sort of bringing back a Build America bond type program with an infrastructure package later in the year, obviously that's going to bring more eyes to the sector. Um, But it could also bring more supply. With more supply, we could see spreads widen out and it would just make the sector even more attractive than it is right now. What's the most attractive aspect in munis or the most attractive area in munis right now? I mean, what are we seeing in terms of um, trends that you like? You know what, the, the biggest areas of, I would say, return growth this year have been longer duration and lower in yield. We've really seen sort of the long end of the, the curve perform best. And, you know, triple, triple B and, and single A munis have really, um, you know, come in as far as performing on the high grade standpoint. Uh, when you look at munis lower down into high yield, you know, they've certainly been big performers. But, you know, if you look at sort of the subsectors of high yield municipal returns, tobacco has been one of the, the biggest boosters there over the last year. Uh, we think there might be some headwinds to come, um, just given sort of the Biden administration uh, beginning to talk about how they want to increase taxes on cigarette sales, also limit nicotine in cigarettes and tobacco products and ban menthol cigarettes. Right. All of that could be negative from tobacco shipments, which are part of the MSA that fuels yep. the payment on those bonds. God, they're making it tougher and tougher to smoke cigarettes, but easier and easier to smoke weed, Matt. So uh, go figure what's going on there. Eric Kazaski, thank you so much for joining us. Eric Kazaski, I don't think you can die from smoking weed is the thing. I know. (laughs) Eric is senior U.S. Municipal Strategies for Bloomberg Intelligence. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. 
You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.